Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is 121, if we're being completely specific about the time. And it is time for a, shall we say, long overdue edition of the Homeward Path. I apologize for last week, but I was just, I was not myself. But for those of you who have never been here before, if this is your first introduction, this is the show where my, where me, my name is Adam. We're talking magic, we're talking... Uh, Normally, we're talking fundamental approaches, we're talking finance, we're talking theory, we're talking whatever, to improve your overall Magic the Gathering game, because that's one of the easiest ways to improve when you're on a budget, time or financial, is to improve the foundation upon which you build your Magic the Gathering game. Heaven knows it's the only thing that keeps me sane most days, is finding ways to improve within the constraints of the the equipment that I have. So, it's obviously been a slow week in the news cycle for Magic, as is tradition when everybody's stuck at home and we can't do big paper events and we can't do big, like, crowd-areaed arena tournaments like the DreamHack Invitational or what have you. But that's okay. That doesn't mean the... the, That just means things move in a different way. Most of the, the direction, the churning of the format is happening online. So today... I wanted to kind of go along with what Mason and Allie did on Constructed Criticism this week, and I want to talk about Standard, but I want to talk about Standard in the context of building decks within it right now, because I want to, it's what I've been doing for the last week, I've been playing a lot of Standard, uh, primarily playing Arena and trying to ladder grind unsuccessfully so far. But I digress. I'm not even going to bother with a fast lane segment this week because, frankly, everything's moving kind of slow. So we're going to stay slow. We're going to stay low. We're going to we're going to take our time with this one. So standard is in a weird place right now because it feels very solved. It feels like the decks that are out there are very well known, and it feels like there's not a lot of room for innovation. And yet, I can take a stock list, change one card, and it feels like the world is new again. And that's a really weird place for a standard format to be. Especially this late into its life cycle when it's being hyper-innovated in the online space. Like, all standard and modern and uh, pioneer formats have been heavily iterated in the in the online space, but in particular, this standard format right now with no major tournaments going on, the paper game not being nearly the the, uh, same focus as the online metagame, it's just pushing the format so much faster. And I think one of the best ways I've I've heard it put is this is a very diverse standard, but it's not a particularly fun one at times. 
which is to say there's a lot of different decks that are good but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's intrinsically fun because I mean there's a lot of decks that are good but a lot of your matchups feel like a slog even when you're favored you're not favored by much you can definitely still claim defeat from the jaws of victory as it were so what I wanted to talk about this week is first the positioning of the decks at the top Mason and Allie did a really good job on constructing criticism talking about that earlier earlier this week but in addition to that, I want to talk about some of the decks that are kind of below the surface that have some game against the field, and I'm going to tell you why. So at the top of the format, at the top of standard right now, we have Mono Red, Bant Ramp, Jeskai Fires. You could argue Blue-White Control is like the next tier down, the Adventure decks are the next tier down. But for the most part, it's Mono Red, Bant Ramp, or Blue Green X Ramp, either Bant or Sultai, and then the Jeskai Fires deck. And why is it why is it shaking out like this? At first, Blue White Control was kind of the de facto best choice after Worlds because everybody's like, oh, it just it it beats up on Mono Red. It plays the long game so elegantly, and then this Bant Ramp deck comes along and just kind of every single card it plays wins the game by itself. And that's not a great place to be if your goal is to try to trade with your opponent card for card. As, as Mason alluded to earlier this week, they did a far better job analyzing that deck than I did. But inevitably, you just kind of overload the blue-white deck's interaction because the quality of the cards or the quality of the threats you're presenting is so great that they have to answer all of them. They can't let it slip through, take a couple of lumps from it, and then stabilize again later. They just can't do it. It doesn't work. By contrast, you know, from the bat ramp side of it, you can let a dream trawler come down. You're cool with that. Because you can overload that with a Nissa, or you can overload that with a, a big crisis and race. and It just creates this weird situation where the blue-white deck never feels comfortable trying to turn the corner because you can just top deck a crisis with like 10 mana and suddenly you're back in the driver's seat. Even if they counter it, you just drew five cards. It's really powerful to say nothing of just slamming a Nissa, slamming a Dream Trawler, slamming a you know, whatever. So, like, the ramp deck has largely supplanted blue-white control because it does the same thing blue-white control does. It smashes mono-red, but it does it better because it does it proactively. On balance, the deck that pretty reliably beats the Bant ramp deck is Teamer Reclamation. As long as you keep Teferi off the table, you have the better endgame. I forgot to mention Team of Reclamation at the beginning there, but it's it's definitely a major player in the standard format right now, and there's a lot of different directions that deck is going. But again, better people than me have already done that. You need to check them out, constructorcriticism.com. They're great. Listen to their stuff. But what I want to talk about, knowing the constraints of the format, knowing what other people are playing is important, knowing what decks are playing. 
What's more important is knowing what cards are defining this standard format because that's where the intrigue, that's where the innovation starts to happen, right? And it seems to me that this standard format is defined less by full-on decks and more by a handful of cards, as it usually is, right? The red decks are largely defined by their ability to slam you in the face with an Embercleave. If you take away Embercleave from the red deck, it's kind of mopey and definitely doesn't win as much as it does. Still wins some, but the, the, like the Cavalcade of Calamity version is probably superior if you don't have access to Embercleave. Sounds like a hot take. It's uh, more of a mountaintop take, but, you know, we'll work with what we got. It is a little warm outside, I suppose. 81 degrees in March. Feels weird. But if you move away from trying to look at beating a deck and look at trying to insulate yourself against commonly played card effects... The, the format becomes a little bit more interesting. It becomes a little bit more fluid, a little bit more exciting. For example, the blue-white deck, the, the Bant Ramp deck, the, um, what is it, the, the Esper Hero, if you ever run into it, are largely based around the premise that using Teferi to buy time to set up Elspeth Conquer's death is a powerful line to take. By contrast, something like Simic Flash, Team of Reclamation, uh, I would argue Team of Reclamation could probably adopt this at the very least, but something like Team of Reclamation, Bant Ramp itself, Sultai Ramp, maybe there's a Teamer Ramp deck out there, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet. The idea that going growth spiral into uh, Uro into Nyssa is a really powerful thing to be doing. You know, it's, it's curve outs. It's, it's sequences of cards that are, that are defining the standard format right now. You know, in the mono red deck, it's runaway, it's runaway steam or robber of the rich. It's one drop into one runaway steam or robber of the rich into Anax into Embercleave. That's, you know, your, your proactive sequencing. And that helps explain why the blue-white deck fell off so hard. Because what is their proactive sequencing? Like, Birth of Miletus into Tapland, Omen of the Sea, into Shatter the Sky, into Elspeth Conquer's Death? Or, you know, Birth of Miletus, Teferi, Shatter the Sky, Elspeth Conquer's Death? That's... You get your teeth kicked in. It's powerful, but it's not more powerful than having that as part of your Growth Spiral Uro Nissa deck. So the more I look at this standard format, the more I start to see kind of some underlying patterns, some underlying things to get into. And it helps me understand why the adventure decks were so good for so long, or for at least the little while that they were, because your ideal, like your best starting sequence in the adventure decks is Edgewall Innkeeper, Lucky Clover, Beanstalk Giant, or Fertile Footsteps, rather. 
And that puts you ahead on mana and cards compared to a lot of these other lines. And that's why the adventure decks were so popular is because they felt more powerful. Now, if you break up the synergies, your, your deck's still pretty good, but you can get bodied by cards like Shatter the Sky or uh, Deafening Clarion or uh, Storm's Wrath or Ritual of Soot. The more, you, the more you try to push trying to be more powerful than them, the harder it is to do because synergies are easier to break up than individual card power. It's just a fact of standard magic. Your synergy deck has to be undeniably more powerful in order to justify playing it over something that doesn't have to try as hard. You know, Embercleave doesn't need synergy. You just need creatures attacking. Whether they're just red creatures or green and red creatures or black and red creatures doesn't really matter. You just need creatures turning sideways. And that's, I think, what makes the standard format kind of settle in the way it has. The adventure decks were everywhere for a couple of weeks, and then they just kind of fell off a cliff. Because once players started respecting the synergy enough to answer it, you can't become more powerful than Growth Spiral into Uro into Nyssa. Not without, a, not without taking that curve into consideration when building your deck and that's what i want to talk about today if every deck in standard wants to curve out wants to play powerful things every turn and use as much of their mana as possible i would not be doing my job if i didn't recommend the flash decks you get you know under underneath the uh the veneer of how power hungry this standard format is, there's a couple of engines that get under all that power right now. The red black sacrifice deck and the flash decks are both really good instruments to get in under all of this. In particular, Cauldron Familiar Witch's Oven is another engine and then you you know surround it with appropriate support cards. The red-black version is a little more streamlined. The mana's better. You don't take as much damage from your mana base. Uh, you're not as susceptible to maybe some of the cards that the flash deck wants to play that you know you can get bodied by the counter spells on your top end are really awkward when you're playing Jund. Whereas if you're playing Rakdos, your, your curve is really light, you're aggressive, you're getting in their face, Croxa is another card that's powerful, and you just kind of create this unrelenting shell of proactivity that has just that little bit of grind spice to it that kind of occupies the proactive side of midrange. And I like that. Because you still have a little bit of an edge against the, the red decks. Thanks to all of this, you know, claim the firstborn and witches of it. Uh, Angrass Rampage as you, as you aggressively trade bodies off. Priest of the Forgotten Gods does a good job mopping stuff up. 
And if you can keep them down to one or less creatures on the table while you're just plinking away and gaining some life, while you're just valuing them out, while you're just making it that much more difficult for them to squeeze ahead. And then you have like Angrath Rampage just makes them sacrifice Embercleave. It's so good. So at the end of the day, like, and claim the firstborn with a witch's oven active on an annex is hilarious. Especially if you've got a couple of red pips on your side of the board. So that you can just brain them for like four or five and then make two one ones. If you got a mayhem devil, you ping them for another one. Like, ew. It's really good. But the other, the other intriguing part of the format, like the, the, the Ragdoll Sacrifice deck gets in under a lot of this stuff and poses problems to it. It poses problems that are difficult to answer because, you know, Elspeth Conqueror's death doesn't get clean targets. Uh, Shatter the Sky, you don't care about. Yeah, you'll lose some creatures. You're going to eat a couple of them, throw some damage at your opponent, make some food, your cats come back. Everybody's happy. You still get your value. You know, Uro's cool and all, but he costs, Uro costs less, or three or less, so you can, they can make him, and then you can claim that, claim him as the firstborn and throw him at their head for six, sacrifice him to a witch's oven, and make him escape it again. It's so powerful, so potent. It does such a good job at cleanly answering the, the core engine at the top of the standard format, which is... Growth Spiral, Uro, and Nissa. But the Flash decks also do a really good job with that because it is really frustrating to pour all that effort into Growth Spiral, into Uro, and then have your Nissa get hit by an Ionize or a, a Sinister Sabotage. It's really frustrating to need that Elspeth Conqueror's death to resolve on that uh, Brazen Borrower. Only to have it counter. Or waiting on Chapter 3 to resolve and it gets bounced. Or destroyed because you're, you know, a lot of your flash decks are playing green and they have access to return to nature after sideboard. It can be very frustrating to play against the flash deck. Now, it's it doesn't make the flash deck into a world beater by any stretch. But it definitely goes without saying that having, having a way to frustrate, to throw your opponents off, to force them to play off curve is very powerful, especially if your opponent doesn't realize what's happening soon enough. Uh, as a mono-red player, I've actually enjoyed playing against Simic Flash because once I see them on turn two not doing anything, 
if I don't see a growth spiral at the end of the at the end of my second turn on the draw or a growth spiral at the end of my third turn on the play, I'm going to assume they are flash until I am proven otherwise. And in said scenario, I am going to play off curve in an effort to frustrate the Simic flash player who's looking to try to gain tempo value. I will run out, you know, on if I'm on the turn three play, I will just whatever threat I've got on the table, I'm going to send it at you. Do something about it. You know, if I curve one drop into robber of the rich and they go turn one on the, you know, on the draw, they go turn one land, turn two tap land, whatever, or turn one tap land, turn two untap land, go. I'm assuming on my, on my third turn, they have quench. They have negate. They have some sort of interactive piece. I'm going to send those creatures in. We're going to see what happens and I'm going to pass the turn. And if they don't go in step growth spiral into untap Uro, I'm going to assume they're the flash deck and I'm going to be playing around counter spells. We're just going to keep slamming in there with what I got until you deal with it. But not every red player has that level of discipline. And it's really easy to get somebody when they're like, They've got robber, they've got a scorch spitter, and they're like, okay, uh, you're not doing anything. Let's just jam this annex onto the table. And you ionize. You know, ionize your annex, you take two. Untap, land, go. Uh, Torbrand. Frilled Mystic. Or not Frilled Mystic, I guess. Uh, Brineborn Cutthroat plus Essence Capture. I don't know. I'm making stuff up here. You know, Brineborn Cutthroat plus Quench. No. Attack you for three. Uh, another Anax. Sinister Sabotage. Put a counter on Brineborn. Uh, attack you for four. And suddenly things have started to spiral the other way. Now you're forced into blocking. You're priced into blocking. It, it makes things awkward for you. You have to like start trying to trade resources off. You know, heaven help you if they've got like the, the Bone Crusher Giant when you commit to the double block and then they have the, the stomp and the is it flash or the teamer flash. It just, it creates a lot of problems for you. If you don't respect the possibility that they can frustrate the ever-loving crap out of you. And then the last ones, I wanna I wanna run through a few of them that I have run up against playing either ladder or just unranked to get a couple of games in, complete dailies or whatever. I've run into some weird stuff, but it's really cool stuff. I've run into the uh, hateful Eidolon Aura's deck. I've run into various forms of the uh, standard Boggles deck where you play Paradise Druid, give it Vigilance, and then slap a bunch of Auras on it because very few players are playing anything other than Shatter the Sky that keeps up. And it's very possible to save said creature 
in that instance. <sighs> to say nothing of the fact, like, even if you just Stesson champion and let's let's value you out, Karametra's blessing is a beating, right? Because you blow up everything, but you know, you, you can blow up everything, but don't don't try to spot removal that deck. Karametra's blessing is dive down on steroids. Because you get protection. You don't get hexproof. You can use that offensively. That's ridiculous. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, but when it comes down to this standard format, I've found a lot of light. I've found a lot of love in addressing the format from the approach of targeting the core engines, targeting key cards and core engines with specific cards. And I've talked at length a couple of times now about how much I like playing Scorching Dragonfire and the Red Decks in the main. I know it's not trendy. I know it's not flashy. It's not what everybody's doing. But the Red Decks can have trouble beating Uro if it gets to escape. And one of the better ways to deal with it is to have access to a removal effect that will keep it from escaping. That also works in other matchups or against other cards. So Scorching Dragonfire stock for me is at an all-time high because it still does 90% of what you want your burn spell to do. And it takes some of the pressure off of Stomp when it comes to removing blockers allowing it to go upstairs more often or allowing it to be used as an interesting piece when your opponent does something like block and protection effect or block with a creature that has protection because you can get them to block and then you can stomp their head but then it says damage can't be prevented this turn so the part where damage uh, prevent all damage can't be damaged is dropped off of the protection effect and they still lose their creature. To say nothing of how much I love Scorching Dragonfire against exactly Uro and Croxa, because they come down, activate both abilities, and in response, you put three damage on them, and then when they would die this turn, they exile. Well, if they're coming down from hand, they're going to die this turn. That's not good for you. Because now they exile. It also removes the land that Nyssa animates as a blocker, which can sometimes mean the difference between an unopposed Nyssa on the other side of the board and not an unopposed Nyssa. Maybe you can just kill them if you have the Ember Cleave. You know, maybe you can instep Dragonfire the land, untap, attack Ember Cleave. Or instep Dragonfire the land, untap, Robber the Rich, Ember Cleave, kill you. Or kill Nyssa. So it, it's the kind of card that creates an interesting sub-game because of how it lines up against the other engines in the format. If it kills and exiles Teferi, one of the common lines for the blue-white deck is to try to Elspeth Conquer's death its way back into Teferi. Well, if they Elspeth Conquer's death and Teferi's not in the graveyard, they got to find something else. And if they haven't dumped a dream, crawl, a dream Trawler or an Archon, they don't have anything else. 
So it can be difficult for them to win the game. It can be difficult for them to pull ahead. You can create that little window. On balance, one of the other decks I've had a lot of success with because of the fact that it targets the idea that nearly every deck in standard wants to play heavily to the board is the blue-black blue board control deck. It is by no means a well-rounded deck. It is very good at one thing and one thing only, which is killing creatures. But it just so happens that killing creatures lines up really well against what everybody's doing right now. I'm still working on it. I'm still tuning it. I'm still trying to get numbers right. But I've been playing it forever, so I'm really comfortable with it. And then having access to effects like Epic Downfall, which exiles Uro. That, uh, you know, they escape an Uro, I can exile it. So they don't get to escape it again. Yes, they've gotten two cards and two free land drops and six life off of it. But that's not what matters to this deck. What matters to this deck is keeping the board clear. We can deal with the rest of it. We'll worry about the rest of it later. Uh, Ritual of Soot lines up really well against a lot of the field, especially in the, the Tier 2 areas where you're going to run into stuff like uh, Boros Knights, Rakdos Knights, uh, the Red Black Sacrifice deck, the, the Adventure decks, respectively. Ritual of Soot kills everything. In the adventure deck. It kills literally every creature in that deck that isn't named Beanstalk Giant. All of them. Dead. It blows up all the lands that Nyssa made into creatures. Dead. Really good. And a, a foundational piece to the blue-black board control deck. And then just having access to after sideboard against these decks that want to play out of their graveyard, whether it's the sacrifice deck, whether it's uh, the, the various growth spiral or Nissa decks, having access to Ashiok dream render to exile graveyards. It's really powerful. So, I mean, I've, I don't have results to show for it, but I have had a lot of fun iterating in this standard format, and I hope you have too, because I know it looks boring. I know it looks like a slog, even though there's so many diverse decks out there, it feels like the same two or three are the ones that are going to win reliably. Just dig a little deeper. Approach it from a different level. Bring them down to your level. Make them fight a fight they're not prepared to win. So, what am I doing this weekend? What am I playing right now? In standard, on, on the ladder grind, I am largely playing Sultai Adventure or uh, Mono Red. I'm mostly playing Mono Red until I start running into a bunch of stuff that it's bad against, and then I will switch. Uh, Sultai Adventure will be the subject of another a deeper deck dive once I have the, the wishboard the way I want it. But it's definitely something I'm playing. Uh, Mono Red, I mean, it's this, it's a stock list. You take the, the list that 
oh, I can't remember who it was, put one out earlier today. And the, the biggest change they've made from stock is cutting down to two Bonecrusher Giants, playing two Tybalt in the main deck to keep your opponent from gaining life and to make some tokens so that you have attackers. And then uh, you take that list, you replace the, you put all four Bone Crushers back in, and you replace two light up the stages with, uh, replace two light up the stages with two Scorching Dragon Fire, and you have my deck list. Congratulations. <laughs> I didn't try to reinvent the wheel with that one. The mono red deck is really quite good with Embercleave. If it dropped Embercleave, I would have to start looking into like splashing a color or something. But I mean, that's really all there is to it, folks. Standard feels like a slog. It feels gross. It feels horrible sometimes. But it's still really fun. Like really fun. And I hope I'm going to see some of you later tonight. Uh, I'm going to be playing the FNM from home event on Arena. I am still technically under quarantine at home. Uh, I had a coworker who visited her brother on Friday in another city. Came home, was at work all week. And found out Wednesday night that her brother had spiked a fever and was being tested for COVID-19. Uh, we currently do not know the results of that test, but she was she was not symptomatic and he was not symptomatic while she was there. But she has been placed in isolation and we decided it was best at home. If I was not around the kids for any extended periods of time until we know the results one way or the other. So, I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands tonight. I'm going to be doing a whole lot of nothing for the next couple of days. Sitting in a room and staring at either a computer screen or the back of my eyelids. So, I hope everybody enjoys. <laughs> I'm going to be playing a lot of magic. I hope. But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to find more content like this, remember, head over to our, our parent company, ConstructedCriticism.com, or our sponsor at PureMTGO.com, where you can hear everything from the Constructed Criticism Network and a multitude of other great content creators. And if you like what you're hearing, enough to help me do it, and you have it to spare, can't stress that enough, don't, don't throw it at me if you need it, keep it. But if you have it to spare, and you want to support this show, you want to help me keep doing what I've been doing, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. I love, I love every single one of my patrons. I try my best to interact with everybody as much as I can, but I just... Last couple of weeks have been wild, and I have not been up to standard on that. I am working on some some more engagement ideas and some more patron collaboration ideas. So if you've got any ideas, questions, comments, concerns, hit me up at Homeward Path on MTG on Twitter, on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, quite a few. Quite a few ways to get in touch with me. I'm easy to find. And speaking of easy to find, 
is time for hashtag MTG Dad Jokes because there's nothing you can find easier than somebody who's willing to be a little punny with you. So let's go down here. Okay. I did not get any of those. So the first one from the 13th uh, from Modest MTG says, Magic the Gathering has been canceled. Begin Magic the Quarantining. <laughs> sorry, not sorry, indeed. Oh, come on. Hold up. There it is. Uh, new Constructed Criticism co-host Allie Warfield says, Holy, my opponent just memory jarred into my Narset. To which there was a reply. I bet that was pretty jarring to see. <laughs> veil parted indeed. <laughs> the veil came back and they realized they had no cards in hand. That's all we got this week, everybody. That's all I got. I can only share them if they are sent to me. Let's double check the Facebook group. I don't think anybody got one in. Doesn't look like it. No. Okay. Well, that's all we got for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll catch you next week where I am going to be doing a, more than likely I will actually be doing a full-on deep dive into the Sultai Adventure deck into like, why I've why I chose Sultai, uh, what configuration I'm using, and then what the uh, the wishes granted sideboard looks like. So hope you'll stick around for that. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay apart, and remember the most important thing. I stress it every week. Now we don't get to interact with people very often except online. So when you do, before you, before you type anything, heed the 12th doctor's advice, please. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So log on, be kind, have fun. Take it easy, everybody.